On January 1st, 1861, there were, as I'm sure you'll recall, just over 16,000 officers and enlisted men serving in the United States regular army. The next five years, this army would be so tremendously expanded that more than 2,890,000 men would serve for varying periods of time in its ranks. Reduced to terms of three years per man, this is an army of about a million and a half. But no matter how one plays the Civil War numbers game, the Union Army grew so quickly and to such a size that for every one man in the pre-war army of 1860, there were a hundred men in the army by 1864. Further, in 1861, there were 1,080 regular army officers on active service, of whom 821 were graduates of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Of the 821 West Point graduates, 184 resigned and joined the Confederate Army. 129 of the officers appointed from civil life also resigned to join the Confederate Army. Altogether, then, about one-third of the professional officers in the pre-war regular army resigned and went south. But these figures do not tell the entire story, since many of these officers who resigned were in higher ranks, in the field ranks. So at the beginning of the war, the regular army was seriously handicapped by the loss of one-third of its officer corps, particularly those in the field grades. Now, the men who left their homes and jobs to rally around the flag and join the Union Army came from farms, villages, cities, all over the north. Many of the men from the city had never handled firearms. Indeed, many of the country folk could hardly be called proficient in that area. Every one of them, of course, had some acquaintance with horses, but few of them could be called horsemen. The frontier then was west of the Missouri River, and many Americans had never spent a night in the open or cooked their own food over their own campfire. These were the men who were joining the Army, and they had to be transformed from civilians of diverse backgrounds and occupations to soldiers with common clothing, food, weapons, with a common discipline, with common methods of movement, and a common goal or purpose. With one-third of the regular Army officers gone, and with 100 men to train where there had in the past been one man to train, the Army turned to training manuals. General Jacob D. Cox, ex-governor of Ohio, explained how it was in Camp Denison, which was just outside Cincinnati, and he's talking of May 1861, and I quote, he said, the men were not yet armed, so there was no temptation to begin too soon with the manual of the musket, and they were kept industriously employed on marching in single line, by file, on changing direction, informing columns of fours from double lines, and so forth, before their guns were put into their hands. Each regiment was treated as a separate camp with its own chain of sentinels, and the officers of the guard were constantly busy inspecting the sentinels on post and teaching guard and picket duty, theoretically, to the reliefs off duty. Schools were established in each regiment for field and staff, as well as for company officers, and Hardy's tactics were in the hands of everybody who could procure a copy. One of the proofs of the unprecedented scale of our war preparation is found in the fact that the supply of authorized tactics was soon exhausted, making it difficult to get the means of instruction into the company's schools." Unquote. Now, of all the books that were used, probably that written by William Joseph Hardy was the most widely read. Hardy, as I'm sure you'll recall, was a regular army officer, a graduate of West Point, served in the Seminole War, studied at the French Cavalry School at Samar, fought in the Mexican War, and was Commandant of Cadets at West Point. He was Lieutenant Colonel when he resigned the last day of January 1861 to become a full Colonel in the Confederate Army. He led a corps, as you'll remember, at Shiloh and Perryville, Stones River, Missionary Ridge, and in the Atlantic Campaign. 
He tried to stop Sherman's march to the sea uh, and entered the war lieutenant general with Johnston in North Carolina. Hardy's tactics, and that's the title of his book, Tactics, came from the French. Indeed, it's almost a literal translation from the French ordinance. Many of the books of the period were taken directly from the French. Some of the books were little more than exact translations of earlier French works. Hardy's tactics first appeared in 1855. How many editions were published, I do not know, but I do know of 12 different editions, or more properly, printings, because most of them are exact reprintings, including five that were published in the Confederacy between 1861 and 1863. In a very real sense, both sides studied the same book. Ulysses S. Grant, uh, then an obscure colonel in command of a rather unruly Illinois regiment, used Hardy's tactics, as he explained in his memoirs, and let me quote from Mr. Grant. Up to this time, my regiment, this is the 21st Illinois, had not been carried in the school of the soldier beyond company drill, except that it had received some training on the march from Springfield west to the Illinois River. There was now a good opportunity of exercising it in the battalion drill. While I was at West Point, the tactics used in the Army had been Scots and the musket, the flintlock. I had never looked at a copy of tactics from the time of my graduation. My standing in that branch of studies had been near the foot of the class. In the Mexican War, in the summer of 1846, I had been appointed regimental quartermaster and commissary and had not been at a battalion drill since. The arms had been changed since then, and Hardy's tactics had been adopted. I got a copy of tactics and studied one lesson intending to confine the exercise of the first day to the commands I had just learned. By pursuing this course from day to day, I thought I would soon get through the volume. We were encamped just outside of town on the Carmen, this is Mexico, Missouri, among scattering suburban houses with enclosed gardens. And when I got my regiment in line and rode to the front, I soon saw that if I attempted to follow the lesson I had studied, I would have to clear away some of the houses and garden fences to make room. I perceived at once, however, that Hardy's tactics, a mere translation from the French, with Hardy's name attached, was nothing more than common sense and the progress of the age applied to Scott's system. The commands were abbreviated and the movement expedited. Under the old tactics, almost every change in the order of march was preceded by a halt. Then came the change and then the forward march. With the new tactics, all these changes could be made while in motion. I found no trouble in giving commands that would take my regiment where I wanted it to go and carry it around all obstacles. I do not believe that the officers of the regiment ever discovered that I had never studied the tactics that I used." Unquote. Now the Scott whose tactics Grant studied at West Point was uh, General Winifield Scott, the hero of the wars of 1812 and was Mexico, General Chief of the Army from 1841 until he was succeeded by McClellan in November of 61. His book, which appears in three volumes, was first published in 1840. And although the volumes used by the Civil War soldier bear the date 1861, they are the 1840 edition with almost no change. Actually, Scott's work goes back to 1825, when he was uh, appointed to a board set up by the War Department to examine tactics. And a version of his work was published that year. It was again published with some changes in 1835, and then the final edition, the one used by the Civil War soldier in 1840. It appears, again, I, I do not know how many editions were published, but I know of five different versions, five different printings of the 1840 version. The third of these widely used manuals was the authorized so-called tactics of the War Department. These were in part hardy, and taken again from the French, 
with, with, but with a number of changes. The preface of that volume, The Authorized Tactics, points out the influence of the French. Uh, and I won't quote from it except to say that the first line says that uh, based upon the latest improvements in French military experience and adapted to the peculiar wants of our service. Some of you will recall General Silas Casey, another West Point graduate who had fought on the frontier and in the Mexican War and as a division commander in the Peninsular Campaign. He'd been returned to Washington after that, not because he was found wanting in combat, but because his real talent was at administration. And so he assumed staff and training duties, including the command of the District of Washington. The parts of the 1861 War Department tactics, the authorized tactics, not taken from Hardy, were written by Casey. He certainly wrote the entire 1862 and later versions. He also authored, although his name does not appear on the title page, the 1863 volume of authorized tactics, which is titled United States Infantry Tactics for the Instruction, Exercise, and Maneuvers of the Colored Troops of the United States Infantry. Now, I should add that this volume is a general military manual and has no uh, specific references dealing with Negro troops. Casey also published another volume dealing with uh, higher troop movements, and he pointed out in the preface, and I quote, the following volumes are based upon the French Ordinance of 1831 and 1845 for the maneuvers of heavy infantry and men on foot, the former having been translated by Lieutenant General Scott and the latter by Lieutenant Colonel Hardy. My attention was more particularly directed to these things when engaged in 1854 as president of a board assembled by the War Department for the review, correction, and emendation of the translation of Hardy." End of quote. Another influential volume was one written by West Point graduate Henry Copay. After service, which included the Mexican War and teaching at West Point, he resigned and became a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, where he published textbooks on a great many different subjects. He was a very learned man. He later wrote Manual of Battalion Drill and translated other French works, but his military works, but his Manual of Battalion Drill became one of the standards in the field. Now, there were manuals on every conceivable subject, Many of them were, in fact, almost all of them were quick reprintings of much older books brought out to satisfy the tremendous demand for information on everything to do with the Army and with military life. Many publishers were very active in this field, uh, but names which are still familiar to you uh, were the publishers most active. J.B. Lippin Cotton Company in Philadelphia, Harper Brother and Brothers in New York, D. Van Nostrand from the same city, J.W. Fortune, G.P. Putnam, Wiley, also of New York, and Philip and Solomon of Washington. These were the principal military publishers. Now, to suggest to you the scope of the publications, I'll just pick from a list published by Van Nostrand of what they had available in 63 to give you some idea of the material available and the prices, too, which are rather interesting. Uh, military dictionaries were a big item, and the most popular one was written by General Winifield Scott. Scott's Military Dictionary, which you could get in one big fat volume, cost $5. Rifles and Military Practice, School of the Guides, Army Officer's Pocket Companion, which is one I have used. Uh, you could buy for a dollar and a half in a leather binding. Halleck's International Law, uh, Casey's New Infantry Tactics in three volumes, and many of these did appear in multi-volume sets, all very small, roughly three by five, uh, so they could fit in the overcoat pocket or in the saddlebag. Uh, Lieber on Guerrilla Parties by Francis Lieber, uh, and his work in this field led to the uh, formulation by the International Red Cross at a later date that, uh, of the code by which prisoners are still treated. Uh, 
an interesting fact. The Handbook of Artillery, uh, Maxims and Instructions on the Art of War, Cavalry, its History, Management, and Use in War, American Military Bridges, New Bayonet Exercise, Rhymed Tactics, which is uh, a very scarce book. It simply taught you tactics and rhyme, in case you had trouble reading uh, or memorizing uh, the regular writing. Uh, Holly's Railway Practice, Benet's Military Law, that, that is written by uh, the father of Stephen Vincent Benet, the famous poet. Uh, and many, many more. I won't read them all. Uh, there are a number of books published on sword play and saber exercise, again taken directly from the French. Uh, just many books on the Navy. I won't read the titles. And a number of books on this new, uh, relatively new thing, steam propulsion. Many books on that subject. Uh, no one has yet done a proper bibliography of this material. Uh, I know, I think, quite a bit about these books now, but I know I haven't begun to uh, learn about all that were published. However, I would like to confine my remarks tonight to infantry, because it seems to me it was in the infantry that the largest number of men were exposed to these books, and it was in the infantry actions that the value or lack of value of what the books taught was demonstrated. Now, what were these infantry manuals all about? They taught really in three separate areas. First, the school of the soldier, second, the school of the company, and third, the school of the battalion. And when we say battalion, you can substitute the more familiar word, perhaps, of regiment. Under the school of the soldier, a recruit learned to stand at attention, to face right, left, to face about, to march forward, and obliquely and backwards, to handle his weapon in the manual of arms. He also learned about the bayonet. In the school of the company, the recruits learned to march together to form lines from columns and columns from lines, and lines from lines and columns from columns, and changes of front, perpendicular, oblique, and to the rear. The school of the battalion, for which again you, we can read the word regiment, applied the formations learned by the company to larger masses of troops. Now before I start the slides, let me make a few general observations, which I'll try and reinforce as we go through by particular, pointing out particular slides. All Civil War drill serves two purposes, first on the parade ground and second on the battlefield. There was no extended order or battlefield drill as we understand it today. So all the slides you see and the maneuvers illustrated on the slides are meant not only to be used for parades but on the battlefield. Second, the basic formation was a company front of two lines of men of equal length. The men standing next to each other with, with their hands down at their sides with their elbows touching and 13 inches from the back of the man in the front rank uh, to the chest of the man in the second rank. Well, this is a very tightly masked formation, and I, there's several slides showing how you're supposed to do this. But think again how tight this is, shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow, 13 inches between the two ranks. Third, there were no hand or arm signals as we understand them. Uh, communication was either by voice or by field music. Uh, there were 15 different general calls played by the drum. 20 separate drum beats for use while the formation was in the skirmish uh, order. 26 general calls on the bugle, and 23 calls met only for use of skirmishers. The skirmishers, though, let me hasten to point out now, is not an assault formation, not an attack formation, but is rather a screening and scouting formation, not an attack formation. Again, the manuals explained how the soldier was to get into a formation, and it even told you, and they all tell you how the colonel is to maneuver the formations if by some uh, mistake of chance he's able to get the man in the proper order. He doesn't tell you, though, what to do after you've got the formation made or what this formation is to do for you. The books are completely silent on the matter of how to make an attack, for example. 
6, many formations were extremely cumbersome and took a long series of commands and a considerable period of time to execute. There's much in this chain of command that goes on and on and on before a single foot starts to move uh, to put the soldier in the proper formation. For example, uh, let's assume the colonel commands, and this is one of his shorter commands, close columns by division. On the first division, right in front, battalion, right face, march. This is just the very, very beginning. The chiefs of the first divisions first to have a series of commands cautioning those divisions to stand fast. The chiefs of the second divisions have a series of commands which remind their divisions that they are about to make a right face, which is not like right face today, by the way, when you're in line. Then the second divisions wheel by file to the left with another series of commands, and finally the commands come, such and such a division, halt, front, left dress, ready, front again. And the guys and the officers all during this are scurrying around in their various positions. Uh, after you get there, it's a command now that uh, we could work this out with two simple commands to get the same effect. And you went through this long and cumbersome series of much shouting and yelling before anyone starts to move. They're cumbersome formations. Now finally, two more points. One, none of these tactics are new. I have a number of slides in here from the uh, principal handbook used uh, early in the century, the Abstract of Military Tactics, which was last published in 1830. I also have some slides in here from Maltby's Military Handbook of 1813, uh, one of the later editions of this book, and I throw a number of these on from time to time to point out that the maneuvers that Civil War soldiers use are basically those which were worked out by Napoleon and his troops. Uh, it's obvious, we all know, that the uh, tactics were far behind the development in weapons. Uh, an inexcusable fact, if you look at some of the uh, handbooks translated in the 1850s, particularly reporting upon Austrian experiments with the rifle. Uh, at any rate, we all know this is true. Second of all, uh, when you see Scott, slides from Winifield Scott's books, remember uh, these come from at no, no later than 1840, although they bear much later dates. So there'll be a cut. I'll also put some in from the latest uh, infantry drill regulations from, uh, published by the Department of Defense, uh, because it's amazing how many things we still retain uh, from what Napoleon used. No, I'll do this. I can, I can work all this at once, I think. I have now if we can turn off the lights, we'll start with the slides. Do I have a flashlight? This is the fanciest flashlight in the United States. Hold on, and maybe all will be well. Well, the slide isn't quite on there, but it's almost all on there. This is the authorized tactics. Uh, the, the official War Department version, the date you can't see, is 1861. This is the one that comes in both in a variety of ways. Two volumes, three volumes, one volume. It's, it's Hardy and Casey, and, and Silas Casey. Here's Hardy's uh, 1861 version, which is identical with the uh, earlier one. Indeed, on the back of the title page of that 1861 book, you see it was first approved by Jefferson Davis as Secretary of War. Here's Hardy again, a different version of it, uh, the, as it appeared when it, in 1855. Another, there were a number of paperback versions of these things. This is a quick one put out by a greedy publisher. Uh, it, it's got all the words, but none of the illustrations. And if you've ever read any of these things, you realize how, how you must have the illustrations to make any sense out of what's being said. Here's one of the, con the Confederate versions of the same thing. It only goes to show again that both sides use the same books. Uh, McClellan got in on the act. 
uh, it's interesting now that nothing published, as far as I know, by General McClellan during the Civil War in the way of a military handbook was anything more than a version of what he submitted when he returned to the United States from the Crimean War. And uh, his big, long, lengthy report with illustrations was printed by the United States Senate. So none of McClellan's things are very new. This is one of the best books that I have seen. It's a paperback on cavalry drill and saber exercise. As far as I know, there's no relationship. The spelling is different from this George Patton to the uh, Colonel Handel George Patton of World War II. This is the way the agents advertised. Fortune was a very active, vigorous publishing company, and they gave large discounts to anybody who would sell their books. McClellan's being an exercise. I have some slides from that later on. Again, this is lifted intact, word for word, from his report of the Crimean War. You can see it's got an earlier date on it. Here's the Civil War version of General Scott's. The interesting thing about Scott is he always insisted that the basic formation should be one of three ranks. Uh, when the War Department adopted his tactics in 1840, they specifically disavowed the three-rank formation, yet he shows it uh, anyway. You see 1840 is the copyright date on that 1861 book. Again, I, I want to emphasize in every case now that these are not new. These are all old things reprinted from the French that the Civil War soldier used. Here's Scott's first version, if I can get it focused. There we go, 1825. Uh, he was chairman of the board, the United States military board that worked out tactics. And that's the first version. This is really what you're seeing uh, in the 1861 title page. Here's the 1830 volume, which is again principally Scott, and I'll be using some slides from this in just a minute. Casey, uh, whom I think did a better job on these things than uh, Hardy, this is the, his basic volume. And this is, Casey wrote this whole thing, although it doesn't uh, show on the title page. It's interesting how official publications of the federal government, specifically the War Department, were issued by private publishers. Uh, it makes it very difficult sometimes to be sure what's official and what isn't. There's the... Uh, noticed by the Secretary of War on the back of the title page of Casey's volume for the colored troops. The book I mentioned by Copé, which I think is in some ways the best one on higher evolutions, evolutions of larger troop units. Uh, interesting, I think this was taken from the inside of Patton's book. I think it was Patton's book. At any rate, it gives you some idea of the wealth of material available. So if you're a company clerk and you didn't have enough, uh, you could go in and buy the authorized uh, roll books directly from private publishers. They even publish military passes, as you see. Hastily, uh, these were blank passes. <laughs> they didn't print money, I don't think. Philip and Solomon's, this is just to give you some idea of the kind of material they had available in 1862. Now, they also cheat a little bit because they put down books uh, uh, that were not yet published, <laughs> but that they felt rather certain would be published. And there are uh, several bibliographical uh, ghosts on this list, books that never were published, and some of those are published under vastly different titles. Some of those books are rare, but because we're still trying to buy some of them from Mr. Newman, I'm not going to say which ones are and are not. I expect he knows anyway. Peterson and Brothers were fairly large uh, 
uh, uh, publishers of military books. If you want to get one of these for yourself, I'd say by far the greatest buy in the field is the third one there, Gillum's Manual for Volunteers and Militia. This is a great big fat book of some 700 pages. Uh, it has not only infantry, the complete infantry tactics, uh, it also has cavalry and artillery, and it's a great buy if you can find one. It was also widely published in the South during the war. Now, many of these books had much more in them than the tactics. Most of them had the Articles of War, and if you think the Articles of War are difficult and tough on the soldier now, uh, the Civil War Articles of War make your hair stand on end. They also, most of them, many of them, not all of them, but many of them had uh, dictionaries. Uh, so in case the new recruit fresh off the farm wasn't sure what something meant, uh, you could look it up in the dictionary. Now, a particular interest to Illinoisans, of course, is Elmer Ellsworth. Uh, unfortunately, he did two versions, two, two books, two drill manuals uh, for the Zouab cadets. Now, this is the 1860 version. It is a rare book. But unfortunately, he did not illustrate his books. This is the second edition, the later edition. Uh, it is a rare piece now, but uh, most regrettably, there are no illustrations in either of his two books. Uh, this is one from which I have many slides because Colonel D.W.C. Baxter had a wonderful illustrator. He tried uh, to have action drawings of many of the things he described, and uh, uh, his figures are quite interesting. Uh, this is an example of the kind of quickie paperback thing that was published. There's tactics for the people, and along the side that it says every volunteer should have this book. It's actually a pretty good book. Uh, I've never been able to identify the officer of the U.S. Army who wrote it. Uh, the title page doesn't give any more help than the, other than the uh, cover does. Uh, many books like this, some of the practical hints, uh, we should spend a meeting on practical hints sometimes. They're uh, awful funny. We were very unlearned and in some cases even naive in terms of health, of course, and physical comfort at the time. Uh, this is one that has a unique system of teaching. Uh, I don't know anything really about the late major from the 11th Regiment of the New York Volunteers, but uh, he knew how to write a book that the people could understand. He, the whole thing is done in a question-and-answer method. What is a blockhouse? A blockhouse is. What is a gun? A gun is. And I think it was unusually well adapted to uh, the needs of these uh, of the volunteers pouring into the service. Uh, tactics on everything, you, books on everything you can think of. Frequently both published north and south. This is, of course, one from Richmond. Uh, if you want to be, this is a particularly interesting one uh, from Mr. Cox. The thing that uh, is enjoyable about it is that if you, if you, were, a if you were a company clerk, uh, he includes in this book every form that a company clerk had to fill out as of 1863. Uh, and they fold out so that he not only tells you how to uh, fill out all the many forms you had to work with, he includes them all in the book. Makes for a rather bulky publication. Uh, many books on soldier health, of which this is in some ways the absolute least, uh, were published. Uh, they're most enjoyable to read. I think if the soldiers took seriously much of what they said, uh, we would have had even more uh, casualties from disease than, than we did have. Uh, they represent, however, a class of book uh, that was distributed by uh, free gratis uh, by benevolent associations. The U.S. Christian Commission distributed mainly religious tracts, but some things like that soldier health book. Uh, and this is one of my favorites because this man had a 
was a pretty good cook, and he also had a great sense of humor. And I would like to read uh, his philosophy of cooking to you, which I think you'll particularly enjoy. So he says, cleanliness, cleanliness is next to godliness, both in person and in, in kettles. Be ever industrious, then, in scouring your pots. Much elbow grease, a few ashes, and a little water are capital aids to the careful cook. Better wear out your pans with scouring than your stomachs with purging. It is less dangerous to work your elbows than your comrades' bowels. <laughs> Dirt and grease betray the poor cook and destroy the poor soldier, whilst health, content, and good cheer should ever reward him who does his duty and keeps his kettles clean. Uh, he also has a paragraph on what he calls kitchen philosophy. Remember that beans badly boiled kill more than bullets. <laughs> and fat is more fatal than powder. In cooking, more than anything else in this world, always make haste slowly. One hour too much is vastly better than five minutes too little, with rare exceptions. A big fire scorches your soup, burns your face, and crisps your temper. Skim, simmer, and scour are the true secrets of good cooking. And uh, he also shows you, I don't think I brought any of those slides along, he also shows you how to make camp ovens and uh, has many interesting recipes, including that great old favorite called Bubble and Squeak, which is a cabbage dish, and it does bubble and squeak uh, as it goes along. As it simmers in the pot, it, it really does. Now, here's the first thing the soldier was exposed to. This is the soldier's at attention. And this comes from Mr. Baxter's book. Uh, he draws pretty good figures. And that's how it looked from the side. They explain that the reason you ex leaned forward from the hips was because if you didn't, you'd stick your belly out. Uh, so much for that. Now, there's no, never any attention given to anything like this. And needless to say, this is from the latest infantry drill regulations published by the Department of Defense. They just assumed you knew how to give a command by your voice. None of the manuals discuss this. Uh, the position of attention has not changed very much. Now, they're real big on feet in, in, these, <laughs> in these Civil War books. <laughs> now, this is Mr. Baxter, and I should add, before we go any farther, everything in these manuals, white is the beginning position, black is how you end up. That is, so the white feet are going to the black feet, so this is left face. And this is right face. These are both from Baxter. And if you think we've given up feet, here are the feet again from the latest infantry drill regulations. Left face and right face. About face, this is a little figure that I've sort of uh, become fond of. comes from uh, uh, the National Guard Manuals. That's the title of the volume I took uh, those slides from. The feet, this, now we're going to do about face. Mr. Baxter leaves nothing to chance. Yeah, that's, how you, that's halfway through, and here's how your feet are going to be when you finish. And here's how you're going to look when you're finished. <laughs> he, uh, he liked to show the back of his man. Now, if you think this is very different, look at number one up in the upper left-hand corner. And you can see, uh, <coughs> at attention, just for the fun of it, it's number three at the upper right-hand corner is something abandoned by the time of the Civil War. That was called lockstep. And number two is the soldier with arms. We'll see that identical thing again. And then the soldier in the quick step is number four. And this comes from Maltby of 1813, the last edition of his book. Uh, they're much concerned with the blights. 
uh, how to march on the oblique, and you can see it up there. And the figure two at the bottom uh, is called direct fire, which simply shows you how both ranks can fire at once without the rear rank blowing their heads off the people in the first rank. This is from uh, 1830, this particular one. And here is uh, Scott's version of the Black March. <coughs> and here is a very interesting, uh, good illustration, but from a very interesting book. It's called Manual for Students in Schools. I have a feeling it's a very rare one. I don't know. Uh, now, there's nothing like this. This, is, this would not be close to everyone in the Civil War is with elbow to elbow with your hands down. There's no, nothing like normal interval is today. Everything is extremely tight and close. Uh, they spend a lot of time now showing you how to hold your musket. After you finish the simple facings, forward march, backward march, uh, and the black marches, you get your musket. And they show you how to hold it on two sides. And the first position you learned was shoulder arms. Now, show this, this one is taken from the authorized tactics of 1861. And this is, this little figure is uh, Hardy's figure. Uh, this is from the 1855 version. In 1861, he just reduced it a little bit. It's the same old mustachioed and bearded veteran. <laughs> no, that's the figure Casey uses. This is used in uh, his first book, and then he simply reduces it for the, uh, the U.S. Infantry Tactics for Colored Troops. Interesting enough, they don't use a colored soldier in the illustrations, but this same mustachioed guy. This is the one published for the students in the schools, and I, I always like this little figure a bit. And here's how Mr. Baxter, the, the man of action, shows it. way under his gun, but on the other one, he's at the... Uh, you, want, you want to go back and look at it? Yeah. See that? The only other, he's the trigger guy. Let me go back and look at another one. Yeah. Okay. I don't hold that much. No. And he changed arms. I was waiting for someone to say that. Yeah. They were changed, he changed arms. also get all the way under. This goes to show there's not complete uniformity, and I was wondering who'd see it first, and we award Berlin Sprague the prize. Thank you. And there's how it looked from the side. Well, he's ready to step off. Mm-hmm. Well, that's still shoulder arms. See, there's shoulder arms again. This is from the authorized tactics of 61. Support arms. Uh, I've tried all these and learned how to do this darn drill. This one is a real arm breaker, uh, the support arms. Uh, that's from the authorized tactics, too, because you see you're locking your arm around the trigger guard, and it's doggone uncomfortable. And here's how the National Guard manual shows it. Beats me. The manuals, you see, tell you how to do this, but they don't ever tell you why you're doing it. They don't tell you why about anything. No. They don't today. Well, they do better today. Well, it's the manual of arms, that's all, and this is what they learned. Well, they, if you got them, they're right. That's right. This is Casey's figure. And here's how General Scott showed it in 1840s. Uh, the one we were just seeing on the left, and present arms and order arms, which certainly haven't changed much. Here's how Maltby showed them, and you see the support arms at number one there. And a port arms, and uh, we'll go into three later. And they've abandoned number four by the time of the Civil War, which is a good thing. I, 
I believe. Present arms, which didn't change much, as you can see. Uh, and here we are to General Scott again with present arms, order arms, the same formation we've been seeing. The bottom two, numbers four and five, are inspection arms. And this is a real arm breaker, too. Uh, they also taught them how to load. And there are two sequences of, uh, of loading. Load in seven times load and load in nine times load. And it seems to me they both take the same amount of time. They're much concerned in, in all these drawings about how your hand is when you pull out the ramrod. And there are endless numbers of little plates showing exactly how you're to grasp the ramrod. Uh, I only brought a, a couple of those because they get very boring. This is the position of Prime from the National Guard Manual. Uh, just to show it hasn't changed very much, uh, number one is priming. The other two are uh, fixing bayonets, and we get to that in a minute from the rest of them. And this is the ready position. So we've loaded up, and now we're ready. Oops, well, I change trays now. The trick now is to hit the right tray. That's it. There's the 1840, really the 1825 ready, uh, front rank and rear rank. And now we're going to aim according to Casey, Silas Casey. And you see that. I think so. And I put this one in because I don't see how he could see anything, but I guess he could. And this is, this is, uh, you can't read the bottom line. This says, when deployed a skirmisher to aim with the rear sight at high elevation. Now, I guess we've all fired rifles, and you can imagine what happens when you pull the trigger on that one. <laughs> they all show it, though. The earlier version showing that the, the only difference in the Civil War version is that the elbow is held higher, the right elbow. This is from Scott. Remember, he showed three ranks. So the first one knelt, and the uh, second one stood still, and the third rank sort of straddled the other two. Number three being, of course, the third rank here. And if you think it was much different, here's from uh, Hardy. And if you think it must not have been noisy in that front rank. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, going back to 1830, uh, showing again the different possibilities with two ranks. And they also showed the kneeling position, so we were taught to fire kneeling. And again, if you fired a rifle, uh, you know what's going to happen when you pull the trigger on that one. And Baxter shows you how to, this is called fire. He's brought the position down from the ready, the gun down from the ready to fire without aiming. And this is one of the best ones of all. This is uh, General Scott. And this shows how the three ranks, how the three ranks will be when they're ready to fire. Figure one, the front rank shows you their feet. Uh, the three ranks up there, and in case feet aren't enough, he shows you whole legs. Uh, the first one is firing straight ahead, and then the second figure two is uh, a black fire to the right, figure three a black fire to the left. It's not a completely unimportant diagram, but it's so unusual that uh, I find it enjoyable. They still went around with the trail arms, which hadn't changed at all. The trail arms again uh, from Maltby. <laughs> yeah. Well, he droops pretty badly all the time. Uh, 
And oh, that's that's called arms at will, and it's very close to another one called right shoulder shift arms. Yeah, but it's not quite the same though, Lloyd, because most of the right shoulder shift arms figures show the uh, uh, the gun inclined at an angle rather than straight back like this. That's the only difference I can see in the two anyway. Secure arms, which is self-explanatory, I take it. Uh, here's your right shoulder shift arms. Uh, we see the angle on it. That, that I think, is the only real difference. Uh, there it is again, show you, showing the angle more acutely. And right shoulder arms, you can see the simple difference. Uh, ordered arms. Same thing. And uh, here's one called ground arms. They never explain why you might do this, but they just tell you how to do it. That's right. Yeah. And here's an yeah. Here's inspection arms. And again, this is an arm breaker uh, to hold that thing up there with one hand in the uh, position they show it. And you can get a better idea from the side. This is you just you just use the left arm in this. And if you stood there very long, it would get it gets awful heavy. And here's arms at will. So you can tell me the difference between right shoulder shifts. Of course, he's left on the left side with this one. Well, I assume not. They, they seem to show it about the same way, though. I think I assume it's something like sling arms would be now. Just carry it any way you want to. Uh, port arms, uh, Baxter, Baxter, and port arms, which hasn't changed. Parade rest. Which some manuals admit. Some have parade rest and some do not. Stack arms, which isn't very much different than it is today. Uh, they all steal this drawing from Hardy. And then they were taught a little bit about the bayonet through a series of exact movements to fix bayonet in contrast to the uh, casual lean the piece over and put it on now. Uh, guard against infantry. <laughs> you can see where the point. <laughs> you can see what the point of the bayonet is aimed at. Uh, all right, now the next, that's guard against infantry. Now we're going to guard against cavalry, and so you have to let the horse have it. And note the position. <laughs> it might. And note the position of the legs now, because the position is identical with one called charge bayonet. The only difference is the feet. There's charge bayonet. And Scott showed charge bayonet uh, with three ranks. And Baxter shows you where your eyes are supposed to be and how you get it from around in a position. Charge bayonet. And they still learned the same thing uh, in 1830. This is from the abstract of infantry tactics. Now, this comes from General McClellan, who is about the only one who shows any real bayonet drill. And I guess does this little act, these two action drawings are enough to figure out what he's doing. Uh, this is something called a butt stroke now, as I recall. From, uh, is that what it is now? Am I not right? Uh, and this is a very interesting one called Lesson with the Plastron. Plastron was a kind of a cushion or a pillow that you stuck inside your uniform above the belt. Now, what good it does these two fellows, I don't know. <laughs> uh, they, do, they were taught to sight in their guns in the same way that a recruit is today. They're using a sandbag where the recruit lines up the sights on the target. Then steps back and an officer, a non-commissioned officer, checks the alignment. 
They were taught that indoors and outdoors. This, these two are from a little training manual on uh, firing the rifle published by the War Department. They're also taught to estimate distance uh, by uh, having to figure out how far away each one of those soldiers was, and then an officer checked uh, their estimates. I, I put in some cavalry, some saber drill, just for the fun of it. Uh, these, these, there are two sets of uh, drawings in these. This little fellow comes from the George Patton Manual. The other one comes from Philip St. George Cook. Cook's two volumes on cavalry tactics. And you'll notice in uh, Cook's, they're all drawn as if the man was on a horse, but sometimes they forgot to put the horse in. And I think you can notice that. This is Kerry Saber and present. And then they showed the guard positions. Uh, now, this is St. George Cook's man. He was much more ferocious than Patton's man. And all from the French, of course. And the uh, four striking positions. And this is strike left, point left, actually. Right. And uh, this is, uh, you're going after the infantry with this one. <laughs> And uh, this is the head cut position. And now you're going into the guard positions, the parry positions. Head parry. This is, I don't know why this is called against infantry, but it is. Another parry. Yes, and a rear. I didn't show the rear, I showed the right and left. Uh, that's right. That's right, they still are, sure. And this is charge, which is everything I think we expect it to be. <laughs> and this is called the position of the soldier dismounted. And then they showed you how you're supposed to look when you got aboard. There are several other drawings that go with this one that I didn't bring, particularly showing exactly how the foot is to fit the stirrup. Now that's all I brought on cavalry. Uh, because I wanted to spend the time on infantry. Now here's the basic <coughs> regimental formation. You can't see this one too well. Let's try another one. There. Get that. Oops. There. You know, they're using the older regimental form of eight companies as many of the manuals did. You can see the officers were not exactly out in front leading. <laughs> it, it's not clear which way is front. Is there, oops, let me go back. This is front now, to the top. I'm going off too soon here. There. It's front to the top. The officers are all behind. If you can't read the little symbols, that little cluster in the center there is the band and the, mu the music and uh, everything else. Yes, they've got them spread all over. I, I'm, I'm having a big drawing of that made, but I didn't have it finished in time. This is the, described by St. George Cook as the uh, basic cavalry formation. I'm not sure he's right, but this is what he calls it. At least they had sense enough to protect the flanks and to keep some strength back. Here's the way the company lined up. Leave that on for a minute while you look. Again, front is towards that they're facing to the top of the screen. No, although they're all the same. This actual one is from the National Guard Manual, but they're all the same. No, no, this is the line of battle, the company front. 
With 13 inches between the two ranks, and of course each little square is supposed to be a man. We go on. Yeah, now this is the, uh, the latest infantry drill regulation showing we still have a company front, only we have three platoons, of course, instead of two. And we do get a couple of officers out in front, but this is parade ground. Parade ground drill, you see. <laughs> I don't mean to disparage the officers. The one we just saw, the company one, is both parade ground now and battle. You're going to see this over and over again uh, for the rest of the slides, this basic formation. Now here's one that uh, the first thing they learned together, and if I can find it here, there's a little piece I'd like to read about this which will help uh, make you understand what they're doing a little bit better than the drawing shows you. Yeah, here it is. This is from Private Elisha Stockwell, uh, Views of Civil War, a book you may have all read. He said, counting off was done from the head of the company in the front rank by saying one, two, one, two, and assume black and white are one, two, one, two all along here now. Right when the command was given, right face, number one in the rear rank stepped one step back and faced to the right, and number one in the front rank merely faced to the right. Number two stepped one on each side of number one in the rear rank, making the column four deep. Then, when ordered to front face, each number two stepped back to his place when we were back in two ranks with elbows touching. You want to read that again, or is it relatively clear? <laughs> In some ways, a good example of how cumbersome uh, Civil War drill was. Uh, we still line up in fours, which is nothing new, nothing old. I hear they're going into uh, <coughs> going into their fours, and then up at the top where the back column is turning left, of course, that's the filing to the left. Now, I'm not going to describe what happens to the non-commissioned officers and the commissioned officers and all these things. Uh, they go scooting around, and more space is spent in the manuals telling the officers where they're supposed to be uh, than uh, really is warranted. Second of all, on all these maneuvers, you ought to remember that before anything happened on most of them, guides were put out so that the column here would pivot around the guide. And I think you can see that better in some of the more advanced slides. Here's the same sort of thing from the National Guard Manual. Uh, this is uh, Casey uh, showing one of the basic formations. You're going to see this in a great many different versions. They're marching from the top to the bottom. They're in their column of fours. They're going to form a line of battle at the same old company front. This is by file to the left in the line. And you can see, I think, from the drawing exactly how it operated. They're marching down. They're going to form their line. There are two ranks like they started off from, by left by file in the line. And if you think this is new, here's from 18, here's Scott's 1825, and up on the, the left-hand corner there, he's doing the same thing, from the column into the line. That's what all these are concerned with. Here's Maltby from 1813, and you see the column coming into the line at figure three in the upper left-hand corner. Left by file in the line. When you get a larger troop motor, it's left front in the line, but the first one is uh, this one. Here we go by company in the line. They're going from a column of twos. There are two ranks that they're in. They're going to form a line at right angles. This is all this drill is going to be from now on is from lines, from lines to columns, columns to lines, columns to columns, lines to lines, and so forth. Uh, the same basic thing. In many cases where the 
movement would be left to the, the discretion of the officer in command. It's rigidly prescribed in these books. Nothing is left to chance. When they broke into platoons, I think this is self-explanatory. The ranks simply spun. This is similar to the older drill that some of you uh, must have had squads right, only this is, these are platoons instead of squads. And this is an old, old one. This comes from the 1830 book. They're breaking, uh, breaking into platoons. Uh, this is Scott, excuse me. You see the three ranks that he prescribed. Then they broke uh, from the column back into their front. Uh, they came back in the same way by breaking into platoons and end up with the two bars in the center of the, the front. All of these now are going to be adapted when we get to the battalion section. The same maneuvers, only battalions. And just to show it doesn't change too much, uh, we still do something relatively similar. Here we go back to uh, 1813, and you see up in figure four, uh, they were doing it then. And down in figure one, they were doing it then. We have something similar. The commands today are much simpler, much shorter, and more flexible than the Civil War commands. Now, which one haven't I used? The one on the bottom. The one on the bottom? The one in the box. This is breaking the company into platoons. Again, comes from the earliest uh, manuals you find. There's the company front at the bottom, and they march off into a column. Uh, this is from the abstract of 1830. It's the same sort of thing. It's a little simpler in 1830. There are a few cases where the drill became more complex as the years went on. On the right end of the line, again, they're very concerned with building up this line of battle, elbow to elbow, 13 inches between the two ranks. And you can see they're marching from the bottom to the top and forming their line. This is one that all the manuals use. Uh, I, I, I don't recall any occasion it was used in battle, but I suppose it was. This is countermarch. Cavalry also had a countermarch, which is at least more interesting than this thing. You can, I think you can see what happens. Now we're back, to, but now we're getting to a higher level, getting to the regimental battalion, whichever one you wish to use. Each one of the black bars is a company, and you're going from your regimental line into a column of companies. And this is from 1813, where they went from a regimental line to a column of companies in the same identical way. This is the way General Scott showed it, so it didn't change much. Uh, here's what much of the drill was concerned with. This is from uh, Coupe. Uh, the Colonel's command was changed front forward on the first company by company right half wheel <coughs> march. Then many, other, then many other commands followed before anybody started to move. And the guides were down at H, if you can see it. And you can see a little guide up at the top at, uh, what's that, A, I think, upside down. They're changing, uh, changing their line. That is, the original line faced uh, towards the top of the screen. And they're going to swing around so that they would uh, be in position to counter, I suppose, an attack coming in from their right flank. Much of the drill is concerned with this sort of thing. Another version of it, oops, 
Here they use a tree for a guide. Again, the guides were put out before anyone started to move. You can see how the companies, uh, this is the perpendicular change of front. Uh, they even had the oblique changes of front where you didn't go all the way to the perpendicular, just oblique. There are endless versions of this. I don't begin to show all of them. Now here you're building up a column from the line, only there's a difference. There's your column on the left, face to the top of the screen. Column of companies it is. And they go out there and as they get into the line, you see from the right-hand company at the top, they face to the rear. Now I guess this would be real handy if you were marching down a road and some cavalry came up behind you. Otherwise, it's a usefulness that escapes me. Uh, how often that happened, I don't know. Here again, uh, you're coming from your line to the left to form a line, another line. Perpen these perpendicular changes of front. Now, this is going back to the 1830 volume to show that there's no real difference. Because uh, they just took over what had been done. Uh, this is from the real early one, Maltby from 1813, and a black change and a perpendicular change. Identical. Uh, the one comment that General Grant made was true, that there was a halt every time a command was given in these earlier versions. And then uh, by the time they got to the Civil War, the thing went more smoothly. And here, this is General Scott. He went for large units of troops. This is two lines of eight battalions per line, making it an oblique change of front. And uh, this takes pages and pages in his book. And there are a tremendous number of commands and much scurrying of uh, commissioned officers and guides before this happens. Now, I guess this would be a good thing to learn if you were commanding two lines, eight battalions in each line. Otherwise, uh, I'm not sure how useful it was. Uh, the earlier drills uh, showed simpler ways of changing your line than some of these Civil War ones. And I think both uh, of the drawings are self-explanatory, from a line into a different line and from a column into a line. Much simpler than the Civil War way, I think. The same concern forward in the line. Uh, I didn't say, but these come from many different uh, Civil War books. Here's Maltby again, the early one. Same identical thing. Now, maneuver number 25, which comes from uh, the 1813 volume, is ploying into a double column, to ploy into a double column. Now, ploying is not in the dictionary anymore, but it's an action verb. And the double column, uh, uh, when you have two companies side by side, like companies one and two in maneuver 25, those are not companies anymore, they're divisions. So you're forming a column by division. And this is necessary because of the one great maneuver which comes from a column by division, which is forming the square, which we'll get to pretty soon. An earlier version of the end of line from a column face to the rear. And the Civil War version of it, which is not as quite as complicated. And you can see how they swing around and face to the rear. Again, this is always elbow to elbow, 13 inches between the ranks. And this is a battalion. These are battalions coming uh, right into line again. And the battalions are in a slightly different version from the older volume. There are endless variations of this, of which, believe me, you're being exposed to only a very few. Uh, this one, I should have my, I haven't caught up with myself here. Uh, Anyway, this is the one you use if you want to form behind the fence on the oblique from a column. And there's a long series of commands for this one. 
Uh, and this is from uh, Scott, General Scott, although he doesn't show the three ranks. Uh, there are various ways of forming these divisions into columns, uh, depending on whether you formed on the right company or the fourth company or the left company, center company. Uh, this is the one that uh, Hardy taught. There, there your eight companies are uh, in, in uh, divisions. Uh, then they closed them up, uh, uh, as in this way. They brought them together and closed them up to make their square. Uh, another way of forming uh, your divisions is that top maneuver. Uh, in some ways, now, these earlier drills were a little less complicated on some maneuvers. There were lots of fancy things you could do when you had your divisions. You could swing right or swing left. And this takes a tremendous number of commands. And uh, one always only had to hope that the trees were there to use for uh, guiding. Uh, here they're closing up from uh, normal to close order. And again, uh, this is, let's see, this is uh, Hardy. Now before we get to, uh, before we get to the uh, the closed formations, here's skirmishers. There's the skirmish formation. This is farm skirmishers on the right platoon. The left platoon, which is in black at the very bottom there, holds still. They deploy forward now, and you can see they go out in groups of fours, then each four breaks up so you have a long single line. This is the basic skirmish formation. And there are lots of versions of this. Uh, this is if they want to extend the formation to the right. Then they also had a way to close it up and to extend it up to the left if they wanted to. This accounts for that large number of drum and bugle calls for skirmishers. Now these things would be done today with just a wave of the hand, basically. Extend it out to the left or open it up or close it up. Specific commands and calls were involved in the Civil War. But didn't it? This is never discussed in these manuals. Uh, no casualties. <laughs> I'm quite sure they didn't. There is a maneuver which I uh, have a slide for but didn't uh, bring, showing how to relieve a company on the skirmish line. They just simply march through them and the other company retires to the rear. But they don't talk about that. Uh, No, no allowance is made for terrain. I'll show you that in a minute. Uh, specific commands for things like passing swamps, crossing bridges, and uh, they're particularly concerned with crossing defiles. They're very worried about the defiles. Uh, uh, here's the whole battalion out of skirmishers. They covered such a front that you can see the three companies were held back. You can see the three companies which are not used. Uh, you can see the original the regimental or battalion line, and then you can see the black companies are the ones that are going into action, and three of them come back and form a reserve. This is rallying, to my mind, a completely unrealistic idea, but the idea was, and it's explained, they don't tell you why you might have to rally, but if somehow you do, uh, first you rally in fours, which is the top drawing, then in sections, and they never explain what a section is, but if you look long enough, a section is half a platoon. And why there isn't one more section there, I don't know. And then you rally in platoons, and there are the two platoons in the round formation for repelling cavalry. And then finally you get in your platoon formation and rally on the reserve, which you, uh, I guess, hope is back there somewhere. And they all show this in one version of the some of them substitute squares for the round formation. 
Nowhere does it tell you how to get in that round formation. Now here's the 1813 version of how skirmishers are used, and you see it's the same thing. They're going from a column instead of a line, but it's the same thing. Three companies held back, and they also show the version of uh, retiring into squares, and uh, I think by the time you remember how to do all these things, you'd be overrun by the cavalry or even by infantry composed of grandfathers. Uh, to show that this is not, to show the basic difference between their drill and ours, None of ours is laid out in any specific detail. We use now uh, schematic drawings like these. And you notice they withdraw not to the reserve, but around and behind the reserve. Uh, FEBA, if you're not up on your modern military language, and I'm not so smart because I had to look it up, uh, is forward edge of the battle area. How about that? Now we're into squares. This is Hardee's square, but they're all about the same. First they got into their divisions, if you remember. And then they went up to half distances uh, by closing the column. Then they simply swing right and left, and you've got a square. Now the colonel and the musicians and everybody else, uh, of course, is in the center. But you've got this square now of two lines, uh, elbow to elbow, 13 inches apart. Now, they use the square in the Civil War? They use it all they, I, know, I know several places they did use it. Uh, one I recall was uh, the 55th Illinois at Shiloh. When they moved out uh, in retreat, they had a Swedish colonel, Colonel Momberg, who uh, had taught them uh, how to form the square, and the soldiers didn't think much of it. But as they moved out, uh, when the Confederates came close to them, uh, uh, they formed the square, and according to no less an authority than Otto Eisenschimmel, the Confederates stopped bewildered at what this strange Yankee trick was uh, in the form of a square, whereupon the Union, the 55th Illinois, came out of the square and kept on with the retreat, and every time the Confederates closed up, they went into a square, and the Confederates halted. This is, uh, I checked Otto's sources on this, and he was right, you know. Uh, they formed them on the oblique, uh, again, by specific commands. You just didn't sort of get into it. There are a whole series of commands for this. By the time you got the commands out, the cavalry would be on you. Uh, the older versions, in some ways, are simpler of how to form a square. Now, you asked about terrain. Oh my gosh, I wish I, if I could find my card on this and run. I don't remember the exact command, but it's like this. Obstacle to the front. This is what the colonel says. Obstacle to the front. First three companies, column to the rear on the, third, on the fourth company. And so you can see what happens. They come and fall in column behind the third company, go around the swamp, and then they come back in on another series of commands. Nowadays, if this is what you're doing, of course you just sort of bend around the, the obstacle, but they have a whole series of commands. This is one they spend time on, how to pass a defile or cross a bridge. And this one is, uh, involves, of course, a rearward movement forming into a column and squeezing through and then coming back again. All on specified commands. Here's one of the real beauties. They're marching in a regimental front up there at figure one. And there's a series of commands to squeeze you down. <laughs> to squeeze you down until you go into a column and come around, then you squeeze, then you force yourself back out again to lay down a figure eight on the bottom, and you're back in your regimental front. Now, this sounds kind of silly. Again, a column under such circumstances now would just uh, adapt itself to the problem. And again, how ridiculous some of these are, because who knows if you ever were marching in a regimental front and got squeezed between a lake and some hills. Uh, but every contingency is provided for. And again, a long series of commands for this. Now, some of them, this is from the staff officer's pocket manual. And this tells you how to calculate the breadth of a river. 
I would just simply say that the bo current Boy Scout manual has a hell of a lot simpler way than this. Uh, this is standard in a great many of them. This is the standard plan for the camp of a regiment of cavalry. Even the infantry manuals throw this in. I guess maybe they just wanted an extra illustration. And uh, MS up at the top uh, shows the army is just the same then as it is now. Those are men's sinks. And OS at the bottom is officers' sinks. So they have marks together, but there's at least one thing they didn't do together. And this is the standard plan for the regiment of infantry. And you've seen, I think, there are several Brady photographs of infantry uh, encampments with the stacked of rifles and uh, whatnot. How often they actually did this, I do not know. And uh, again, to show you how specific they are, this is from uh, one of General McClellan, McClellan's pamphlets. This shows you what to do if you're out on, on a foraging expedition and find some hay. If you want to walk, you tie it on like in figure 11. If you want to ride, you tie it on as in figure 12. Uh, again, the ridiculous lengths some of these books go to uh, to uh, prescribe for every imaginable situation. Nothing left to know. This is the only slide I've found that, that, that shows the largest formation. This is how you provide for an army on the march. And I must say, I hope the officers did more than just study this. This is the army on the march. They're marching, you can see the arrow, I guess, they're marching from left to right. But here's a whole army covering with a, with a depth of only 3,000 yards. Most of them are not concerned with the, the officers are left in the dark for anything much beyond a, a regiment. Now here is the, uh, one of General McClellan's drawings again. And he provides for such things, I've, I've, I've given up on my card to go with these, one of these slides, but this is a drawing of something like uh, uh, you know, four, four squadrons of cavalry, uh, six pieces of artillery, this, that, and the other thing, would be very handy if you had all these troops at your disposal. Otherwise, uh, I'm not so sure it is. I think it's unrealistic in several ways. First, in terms of too much strength towards the head of the column. Second uh, of all, his idea of flank protection is, is not sensible, is ridiculous, really. There are very few of these action drawings, though. You can see this one is 10 companies of cavalry and eight guns. And this is from General McClellan also. Uh, the distances are very close, even though they're in marching order on the road. Uh, we still show this sort of thing, but only in schematic drawings, and uh, uh, leaving much to the discretion of the commander on the ground. Uh, you can see the plus or minuses, the minuses are, you know, less than full strength units. Excuse me? Yeah, since, we're in, since we've gone into NATO, the uh, current Army drill books and manuals give things distances in meters now, since we're part of NATO. Well, this, this isn't much different than World War I. No, this is a, comp yes, this is a company uh, uh, on the march. My, many of the books are quite concerned with Grand Guards. And grand Guards are a fan-shaped uh, formation, either for picket duty or for outpost duty. As far as I can see, they're just about the same whether you're under battle conditions or whether you're on a parade ground at Camp Sheridan. This is one uh, where, of course, they're guarding a bridge. And I think this is all just real fine for A and B down there, but it's pretty rough on everyone on the north side of the river. Uh, curiously, the latest uh, battalion manual shows the same thing. 
guarding the river line, and of course they keep almost everyone south of the river, very, almost no one on the other side. The Civil War basic flaw from these manuals, as I see it, is that too much strength, too far forward always. Here's the basic layout for the Grand Guard that every soldier taught and uh, learned about. Rigidly laid down the commands for relieving the guard and tell the countersign and sign and countersign, all prescribed. Here's how they would uh, guard a bridge. Oops, I get it focused right. This, this is the nearest thing you find uh, uh, to our idea currently, and, and not just currently, of all around uh, defense. No, uh, now I know you can't see all this. This is just simply to show that, uh, oh, this is from General McClelland again. Uh, simply to show that uh, they did have an idea uh, about uh, how to guard a village uh, with a lot of roads, a lake, a swamp, and some hills. An officer reading this, uh, while he wouldn't duplicate the conditions, would get the general idea that your forward picket line should be out a substantial distance from the village. McClellan has a bunch of these drawings. Mm -hmm. Those books which deal more with combat conditions are, are the best that I've seen. Not, they're not really books, they're pamphlets, uh, actually. And they're, they're, they're all out of the Crimean War, uh, not from Civil War experience. Uh, now we saw schematic drawings for the same thing. Uh, Fort Edge of the Battle Area in Combat Outpost Line, COPL. Uh, no, again, no concept of the idea of all-around defense uh, that has been in vogue since at least World War I. And, and the squad, of course, is never mentioned in uh, the Civil War manuals. Every time a squad is mentioned uh, and not defined is for purposes of eating together. The basic platoon was, the basic form, the smallest formation they talk about is a section which is half of a platoon. There are a few showing how to patrol. This is again is from General McClellan. Uh, uh, Fifteen man patrol on the left on a road and a 25 man patrol on the right on a road. And he has a guards forward and of course there's some flank protection. But very few, you have to look at the standard military manuals by Hardy, uh, Casey, the authorized taxis do not show this kind of formation. There's a column on a road again. Uh, and this one is re remarkable in that it shows a much more extended order uh, than most of the little pamphlets do. And here's one that shows you how you put out your flank protection. And speaking from experience in the mountains of Italy, this is as unrealistic uh, drawing as I've ever seen. You couldn't even do this on a plane, let alone in hills or uh, any kind of irregular terrain. They showed you how to patrol with varying amounts of men. Doesn't uh, take too much imagination to figure out how to place three men or five, four or five men. Uh, yes, no concept again of the uh, open formations we use now, even though they should have been used then. No concept of the arm and hand signals, which are so valuable today. Again, uh, for skirmishers, the standard formation, open wide, irregular, not prescribed. The only formation I found in any of these books, and I'm sure I've read more of them than even General Halleck did, this is called assault, <coughs> excuse me. This is uh, the only description I've seen of an assault, and this is a squadron of cavalry, uh, a troop, uh, a regiment of cavalry assaulting the diamond, which is their objective. 
And I have looked at this and looked at it and read and read and read and reread the words that go with it, and I still am not quite sure what's going on. This is the only one that shows an actual attack in any one of these handbooks that I've seen, and I haven't seen them all, but I've seen, an all, I've seen most of them, I'm sure. No concept of this kind of drawing that's used today, which is clear and simple and to the point. They told you how to get in the formations, and they leave you at that point. They don't tell you how to use the formation. Uh, <clears throat> no idea of this kind of schematic drawing. In a Civil War version, if anyone printed one and they didn't of this kind of attack, everything would be rigidly laid out and uh, diagrammed so that every man would be shown where he would be. Now we just show schematic drawings. Again, a mark of the loose, informal kind of uh, formations used today. Now, it's gotten all very complex since the Civil War. This is a battalion radar surveillance card. Perhaps you know battalions now, armored, uh, infantry, parachute, uh, use radar for ground uh, detection at the battalion level. You can get some idea of how complicated it is. And uh, while these are simple to read, these, these schematic drawings, uh, I somehow have a much greater affection for uh, these little fellows who appear in the Civil War. Uh, much, it was a much, uh, more cluttered war in some ways, but a uh, much more romantic war, and, and in many ways a, a much more enjoyable war, at least to me. And I thank you very much for your long t attention.